Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. A U.S. spokesperson calls the killings in Gaza a gruesome propaganda attempt by Hamas. But even an Israeli newspaper calls the killings a massacre. I'll talk with Israel's consul general to the Midwest and Ali Abu Nima from the Electronic Intifada. And we'll hear about the latest films and controversies in Cannes. Film contributor Milo Stalik is at the Cannes International Film Fest. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. Let's talk about Gaza with Aviv Isra. He's the Israeli Consul General to the Midwest. Thanks a lot for joining us, Aviv Ezra. Shalom. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to ask first about the open fire orders in Gaza. I noticed that the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem said that Israeli soldiers should refuse to comply with these unlawful open fire orders. And they say the fact that live gunfire is once again the sole measure of Israel's military uh, and is using these uh, – it shows an appalling indifference towards human life on the part of senior Israeli government and military officials. Why does Israel give open fire orders in a situation like the protests in Gaza? Well, it's important to know the background before we start about the, exactly specifically about the, the guidelines. I mean, first misconception is uh, that we, the events are not happening in Gaza. Rather, they are happen, happening on our borders, the Gaza-Israel borders. And, you know, what do you think? I mean, children somewhat happen to find themselves on a dangerous borderline. That that does not happen. Second misconception is that these are not spontaneous freedom of speech, peaceful kind of demonstrations. These are, I would say, rather uh, a Hamas pre-planned, well-organized, violent events on our border to allow breaking the fence, storming Israel with thousands of rioters that are attacking Israeli civilians. And that, and that is now connected to exactly the rules of the game in terms of how we try to protect our civilians. And I think Israel has made relentless efforts to prevent the masses from, you know, violently breaching the border. But how do we do it? Before live ammunition, these include early warnings. We, you know, we send leaflets. We, send, we, call, we actually have direct phone calls to them, warning them of that on the radio, on the social media, as well as the use of non-lethal means, including water cannons, tear gas, smoke, grenades, rubber bullets, way before we get to live ammunition, which is obviously something that we don't want to get to. But, I mean, there are a lot of people who are looking at what's happening here and saying, uh, you know, these are excessive amounts of killings. You just can't kill this volume of people, uh, that, that there's no call for live ammunition, open fire orders at all, according to B'Tselem and other human rights organizations. Well, I think that the human rights organizations also uh, understand that there is a grief danger for human rights abuses if these uh, fences will be breached. We're talking about a very uh, a very dangerous terror organization whose declared goal is the destruction of Israel and murdering Israeli civilians. No one from B'Tselem obviously doesn't want these fences to be breached and to have thousands of uh, Palestinians, including specifically terrorists from Hamas, which will rage into our borders. 
So for us, this is obviously a self-defense mechanism and a self-defense measure. We want to make sure that, on the one hand, our human rights uh, for our citizens are not abused, and on the other hand, as I said, to use the most non-lethal opportunities to prevent it. But the question is even before that. We would like to see how the international community pushes and pressures Hamas to prevent them from bringing innocent civilians, Palestinian civilians, to the border. Why are they doing that? Why are they pushing them towards the border? This is not a kind of a peaceful kind of a move or a kind of a, a, you know, a kind of a freedom of speech in the interaction. This is actually using and exploiting innocent civilians and pushing them towards a fire zone. This is unacceptable. There was an editorial yesterday in the New York Times by one of the people who organized the Great March of Return, as they're calling it, Ahmed Abu Ratima, and he describes something that's uh, different. He does not describe it as a Hamas-organized thing. He describes it as something where the organizers uh, found support for this idea, and then they invited all political factions to join. And they you know, discouraged, uh, you know, violent things. They discouraged burning of Israeli flags. They want peaceful, equal coexistence to be the message. Uh, they're they're after something different. It seems they're not uh, out to kill civilians. They're out to have peaceful, equal coexistence, and they're getting shot for it. If this was have been the case, I would I would surely say that that would, would be a great opportunity to really have an engagement with the Palestinians, which, they, by the way, they have been reluctant of doing in terms of negotiation for the many years ago. But at least 24 of the 60 Gazans that were killed were terrorists, Hamas and Jihad Islamic terrorists. That, they, that Hamas itself published their photos and information on these members. Now, we're giving the terrorist organization Hamas here exactly, in a, I think in a naive manner, exactly what they want. A 19-year-old Hamas member that I've just uh, received a phone call from Israel updating me about a Hamas member that was captured, he stated that Hamas is working to make its activities look like a popular uprising in the media and not a violent operation by its members. And the truth is that they're not only pushing them, they're not only organizing the civilians to come to the border, they are even threatening them, and sometimes they're even paying them. So, you know, we're, we, we, you can say a lot of things about Israel, but we, we know where we live. And uh, playing the you know the rules of the game by trying to say that this is a kind of a not a violent uh, demonstration, we know that it's a lie, and we know that the uh, flags of swastikas are over there, and we know that the flags of Israel are being burned, and the flag of the United States, by the way, are being burned. And I'm not blaming for a second the innocent civilians that are there. Again, I'm asking a question: How can a 10-year-old boy suddenly find himself? Uh, throwing stones and trying to uh, uh, be part of a demonstration on the border, unless it was pre-planned, pre-organized. So we're not naive. We are in a tough neighborhood that uh, is trying to manipulate the uh, public opinion here in the States. And, you know, we've been there. We know that. And I can tell you that from here, the the only thing that we would have loved to do is, you know, to say to them, you know what? You know, everybody's talking about the embassy and try to connect the embassy uh, move, uh, the U.S. embassy move to uh, uh, to Jerusalem as kind of a, a kind of a reason for this. So we know that the U.S. embassy opening Jerusalem and the riots in Gaza are unrelated events. Hamas has planned these riots, and they're taking place from you know from a month and a half ago, and they're you know a direct continuation of the wave that the violence had began so many so many years back. I'm saying to them, listen. We have a great case study in the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian narrative was always Israel has settlements and occupation. Once you'll be out of there, 
everything we will prove to you will be fine and dandy. And you know what? We extracted unilaterally the IDF, any other settlements. We left everything to them. And in return, we got just offensive measures. We got attacks from missiles. We got three cycles of violence. We got underground tunnels that are attacking us. And now we have these violent attacks against us. What kind of message are they sending to their own population? I think Hamas needs to take the responsibility and halt this sooner rather than later for the best of both countries. I was reading some of the uh, things that other political factions are saying about Hamas, and Fatah representatives uh, have said several times that they were pleased that Hamas has understood that the popular, that the proper way to um, protest is through a popular unarmed struggle isn't uh, a move, even if Hamas was participating, they certainly are participating in this um, these protests, um, isn't it good to see them using unarmed struggle rather than violent means? Oh, that would have been great. If it was an unarmed struggle, we would have actually uh, said that, you know, that's the rules of the game. We play according to the rules of the game. But this is not the situation. Whereas the PLO itself and Abu Mazen itself, they wanted to try to uh, bridge the gap with Hamas. And they were incapable of doing that. But the reason is that Hamas does, does not want and is not willing to disarm themselves. Why they're not willing to disarm themselves? Because as opposed to the, 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 the uh, Palestinian Authority, who is willing to theoretically engage in some kind of understanding with Israel, Hamas, their covenant is actually one of their first articles is the destruction, the sheer destruction of the state of Israel. Let me tell you, that is not going to happen in unviolent manner. That is going to be in very violent manner and in a way that we cannot, uh, cannot allow it because unfortunately we don't want to be extracted from the region. You know, one of the other interesting things that happened today, and by the way, I'm talking with Aviv Ezra. He's the Israeli consul general to the Midwest. In a moment, we'll be talking with Ali Abu Nima. He's from the Electronic Intifada, and we're talking about what's happened yesterday in Gaza. And uh, also yesterday, there was the embassy opening ceremony. And it was interesting that there were these two evangelical leaders who were invited to offer opening and closing prayers at the embassy. Um, Mitt Romney tweeted about them, talked about their religious bigotry. And, yeah, I mean, they're, they're known for this end-time philosophy that calls for Jews to accept Jesus or perish. Um, why does the Israeli government associate with and encourage these people as supporters of Israel? Why go, to a, why go and be at something with them? You know, I'm not familiar exactly with the list of guests that were there. I, I've heard, uh, I saw Mitt Romney's tweet, and I don't exactly know how uh, these things were were established in terms of the list. But I can tell you uh, for a fact that uh, the level of support that we received from the evangelical community here in the States, in the Midwest, in the Southeast when I served, is uh, mind-boggling, is overwhelming in terms of the ongoing support. Obviously, I don't think that... Uh, that uh, Jews uh, see themselves as future Christians, and, uh, you know, uh, this this is not what's on the table right now. What is on the table is that this move, the embassy's move to Jerusalem, I think sends a few messages. First of all, it sends a strong message to the state of Israel, to the people of Israel, America's got your back. We got your back. Second, it's sending a very strong message to the world. Follow our lead. And, 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 and naturally, things are happening now. More than a dozen of additional countries are, 
uh, in engagement now in moving it. Some of them already moved their embassy to Jerusalem. The third message, I think, to the Middle East countries, uh, America will stand by Israel, its only ally, the only democracy in the Middle East. Regardless of the fact that Israel is not perfect, America will stand by its ally, including allowed its ally as a sovereign country to determine which city is its own capital. And most importantly, a message to the Palestinians. Stop playing for time. Come to the negotiations, because time is not on your side. The Palestinians have been, uh, I think, unfortunately, declining to the negotiation table. We, we say to them all the time, the distance between Jerusalem and Ramallah is less than 12 miles. We do not need to go to negotiate at the UN. Come to the negotiation table, put everything on the table, everything should be on the table, and we will take it from there. You, if you're using violence instead of it, and uh, uh, I don't know, demonst- violent demonstrations or terrorist attacks, this, this, this will not work. It did not work in the past. Do not miss an opportunity once again. Are you worried that the Gaza uh, situation and the embassy move are things that are not popular among some of Israel's biggest supporters in the American Jewish community? I noticed that a poll last year by the American Jewish Committee found that only 21% of American Jews viewed Donald Trump favorably, 68% opposed an immediate move of the embassy. Uh, people like Natalie Portman, they don't even want to go to events in Israel right now. Um, Are you doing things that alienate uh, people who are your biggest supporters? Well, it's uh, it's very clear that we know that the majority of the Jewish community here, I think about 75% of it usually vote Democrat. So obviously when we have a support coming from a Republican president, uh, it sometimes uh, falls between the cracks in terms of the support. But I can tell you that the biggest asset that Israel has is the fact that the support for Israel is a bipartisan support and transcending administration support. And I think that uh, the, the move the move that has been done here, with, again, with the embassy, is, uh, is actually uh, sends a very interesting message to, uh, to the fact, to the, to the Palestinians to understand that peace has to be built on reality. Now, the Jewish community that you mentioned, many of the organizations have uh, understood that. And they uh, recently, most of them, including the ADL and AJC and many additional American Jewish community organizations, community organizations have uh, congratulated the president of making that move because for us it closes two circles. One circle is what we call the ancient history circle. Jerusalem has been the capital of the Jewish people for more than 30,000 years. And second is the modern history circle, the capital of the state of Israel that is just celebrating now 70 years of independence. So for us, the Jewish community, I think, hails this decision by the, by the president, by this administration to finally, uh, to finally uh, move based on a legislation that, as you know, has passed about 23 years ago bipartisanly, bipartisan legislation that's called the Jerusalem Embassy Act to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. So we are very honored that this happened. I think the Jewish community strongly supports that also. Yes, you're always going to find voices that are, you know, Natalie Portman, she has a certain challenges with, with our prime minister. Well, you know what? This is a democratically elected government. And we, this, this is how it works with democracy. Even if you don't like it, you can, you can protest. You can say that you don't like it. You can write op whatever. It's all fine and dandy. This is what we do in a democracy. But at the end of the day, in democracy, a government states the policy of the government. As Aviv Ezra is Israel's consul general to the Midwest. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation in Gaza and the embassy, uh, U.S. embassy opening in Jerusalem.
Thank you. I really appreciate it. Coming up after the break, we'll continue talking about Gaza with Ali Abu Nima from the Electronic Intifada. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're talking about Gaza, and with me now is Ali Abunima, founder of the Electronic Intifada website. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thank you, Jerome. And I wonder if you could say something about the origins of these attacks. There seems to be controversy about it. Uh, the Israeli government thinks that Hamas is orchestrating the entire event. It's been unfolding for a while, but really exploded yesterday in the news. And maybe a lot of people don't know what's going on in Gaza that created this situation. Well, let me start by reading you the words of Sarah Lee Whitson, the Middle East director for Human Rights Watch. Quote, the policy of Israeli authorities to fire, irrespective of whether there is an immediate threat to life, on Palestinian demonstrators in Gaza, caged in for a decade and under occupation for half a century, has resulted in a bloodbath that anyone could have foreseen, end quote. Uh, Jerome, there is actually no controversy when you look at what every major human rights group is saying, what the journalists who've gone to Gaza are saying, uh, what the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court said a month ago, that Israel has ordered its snipers to fire on unarmed civilians who are exercising their right to protest against being caged in a ghetto for 11 years and for their right of return to lands from which they have been expelled. And today is the day that Palestinians mark the 70th anniversary of the Nakba, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine to found Israel. And this Israeli massacre is a continuation of Israel's policy, uninterrupted from 70 years ago, of killing Palestinians whenever they try to exercise their right, especially their right to return to their homes. What about the idea that Hamas is orchestrating the event and they're responsible for what's happening? They're putting their own civilians in harm's way. And that's a lot of what we're hearing now. Jerome, you have been covering this issue for many years, as have I, and you know that Israel's excuse for killing civilians is always based on the lie that Hamas is using them as human shields. Now, even if that were true, it wouldn't justify opening fire on unarmed civilians. And let's be clear here that the Israelis have been very explicit that these killings aren't accidental, they are deliberate. They tweeted that out after the first massacre on March 30th, that everything was controlled. We know where every bullet landed. We had the Israeli justice minister today, Ayelet Sheked, saying 
that the IDF personnel are doing a very good job and they're following the open fire orders. We have had Israeli Brigadier General Speaker Fogel describing on Israeli public radio a couple of weeks ago how snipers are given the order to fire on, quote, the small body of a child. So even if it were true that Hamas were using Palestinians as human shields, even if this wasn't just propagandistic nonsense to dehumanize Palestinians, it wouldn't give an excuse for Israel to open fire on unarmed civilians. These are war crimes that Israel is taking credit for publicly. And I'll just add one other thing here. Suppose it's true that Hamas is orchestrating these protests. Well, hasn't the claim been for decades or for years that Palestinians should engage in mass civil disobedience instead of armed struggle? Well, when Sinn Féin did that in Ireland, when they moved from armed struggle to a political process, to civil protest, the world applauded them. If it's true that Hamas is orchestrating mass protests of unarmed civilians, why would that be a problem? Surely that should be a welcome development. But the goal of Israel's propaganda is to demonize and dehumanize Palestinians and to say that all Palestinians are terrorists and all Palestinians that are killed are Hamas or it's the fault of Hamas and therefore they deserve to die. And to obscure the reality that for 11 years, Two million people have been caged in a siege that kills them night and day. Last year, Jerome, according to the World Health Organization, 54 Palestinians died in Gaza waiting for Israel to grant them medical permits to leave Gaza for life-saving treatments. Most of them were cancer patients, and those medical permits never came. What security threat are women with breast cancer to the security of the state of Israel? Why can't women with breast cancer or men with kidney cancer be allowed out of Gaza to a hospital in the West Bank to get treatment? And according to the World Health Organization, the number of medical permits Israel is giving to Palestinians in Gaza has fallen to the lowest level since records began. This is why there are mass protests. People in Gaza are saying, enough, we need to live with dignity. We cannot be warehoused as human garbage as Israel sees us and forgotten. So these protests are a mass uprising by Palestinians in Gaza to say to the world, we will not be forgotten. We will not be caged in. We will not be killed in silence by Israel's siege. I'm talking with Ali Abunima from the Electronic Intifada. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll have Milo Stelik from the Cannes International Film Festival. I wanted to ask about the idea that people are charging the boundary there between Israel and Gaza. You know, Israel says, well, this is self-defense. We can't have people charging into uh, the boundary or into our country. Any country would defend themselves in this manner. Is that a problem that uh, protesters are getting out of hand and charging through the boundary? No, this is another lie, frankly, from the Israelis. And you don't have to take my word for that. You can look at the Human Rights Watch investigation into the first Great March of Return massacre that happened on March 30th. 
And you can look at the subsequent Amnesty International report that came out about a week or so later. And those reports agree. And by the way, the UN Human Rights Chief said the same thing, that there are many, many examples, much evidence, including videos that Palestinians are being shot in the back, that many of the lethal gunshots are shots in the back. There are videos of people uh, moving away from the border. They're being shot hundreds of meters away from the boundary fence. It's a lie that these people are being killed as they charge the border. The other thing is that even if it were true that Palestinians are trying to cross the boundary fence into the lands from which they were expelled, that wouldn't justify killing them. The reality is that hundreds of Palestinians cross the boundary fence every year from Gaza. The vast majority of them are desperate people trying to find work in Israel because Israel has made it impossible to live in Gaza, and Israeli forces have no trouble apprehending them without firing a shot. That happens routinely. Hundreds of Palestinians cross the boundary fence. So Israel can apprehend people without killing them, but they have a declared policy to shoot to kill. And today, Ayelet Sheked, the justice minister, said, I hope they got the message yesterday, which again indicates intent, that the intent here is to inflict such horror, such high casualties on Palestinian civilians that they will stop protesting for their rights. The choice that Israel is giving Palestinians is simply this. You live under siege, under impossible conditions, and die there quietly. That's one choice. The other choice is protest, rise up, do what any people subjected to such conditions would do, which is protest for your rights, and we will kill you. And today, Israeli leaders are saying that if these mass protests don't stop, that they will resume the policy of extrajudicial execution of political leaders. This is a gangster state. This is not a state defending itself. And let's also remember, uh, Jerome, that there is no border between Israel and the Gaza Strip. There is no sovereign border. Gaza is an occupied territory according to international law. Israel is responsible for the fate of the people here. And let's turn the Israeli logic around. They're saying that if a Palestinian refugee sets foot across the boundary fence, Israel essentially has a right to execute them on the spot. Does that right apply to Palestinians in the West Bank? whose land is invaded and stolen every day by Israeli settlers. According to the Israeli logic, every Palestinian whose land is invaded by settlers would have the right to kill those settlers on the spot. You know, as the ICC prosecutor Fatou Ben Souda said, this Israeli policy is a gross violation of international law amounting to war crimes that could land Israeli leaders on trial. And that is what needs to happen if this horror is ultimately to stop. I wanted to turn our attention to the United States here for a second. Jared Kushner uh, was at the opening of the embassy and he spoke, talked about the protests, and he said, as we've seen in the protests of the last month, even today those provoking violence are part of the problem and not part of the solution. And the U.S. seems to have an idea about a larger peace plan, and they talked a lot about peace yesterday at the embassy opening. How do you react to what the U.S. is saying here? It's utterly grotesque 
Not a single Israeli has been injured or killed. Not a single rocket has been fired from Gaza since the start of these protests. The people provoking violence are the Israeli commanders and politicians who are giving the order to shoot, to kill men, women, children. The youngest victim yesterday was an eight-month-old baby, Leila Al-Ghandur, who was killed by tear gas inhalation because the Israelis fire huge volleys of tear gas hundreds of meters into Gaza to the area where families are camped out in tents. That baby wasn't trying to cross the border. So it's grotesque what Jared Kushner was saying. And he was saying it at this ceremony where the Trump administration invited anti-Semites like John Hagee, who said that Hitler had been sent by God to kill the Jews, and anti-Semites like Robert Jeffress, who said that Mormons and Jews and Muslims are eternally damned. These are the people who attended the embassy ceremony, because moving the embassy is to fulfill an extreme fanatic agenda that has nothing to do with seeking peace. I'm talking with Ali Abunima from the Electronic Intifada. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll have Milo Stalik from the Cannes International Film Festival. Well, then what do you think the U.S. position is these days when you see people like that at the embassy opening and they're doing the opening prayer and the closing prayer? The U.S. position is to fulfill the most extreme agenda of the most extreme elements of Israel and of the pro-Israel constituency in the United States. And that includes especially these Christian Zionists like John Hagee and uh, Robert Jeffress, who are a key part of Donald Trump's base. And their theology, they don't like to talk about it too loudly because it's embarrassing, is pro-Israel, but fundamentally anti-Semitic. They think that by supporting Israel and moving the embassy, they're going to bring about the second coming of Jesus, an Armageddon in which all the Jews will be killed. So for them, this isn't about support for Israel. This is about fulfilling biblical prophecy. And it's a fundamentally anti-Semitic version of Christianity. The other element, too, is fulfilling the agenda of Sheldon Adelson, the casino billionaire who was Donald Trump's biggest donor, gave tens of millions of dollars to Donald Trump's campaign, and has just announced another $30 million donation to try and help the Republicans keep control of uh, the House in November's midterm elections. That's as far-sighted as the Trump administration policy is. All the talk about peace is just, you know, I, I can't use the words I want to use on the radio. But let me say this. I think that their presence, the presence of people like Heiji and these white supremacist Christian Zionist fanatics is an indication of a trend that has been happening in the United States over many years where support for Israel has become much more a right-wing, conservative, far-right issue. And the mainstream of Americans, the mainstream of uh, Democrats, particularly younger people, are utterly horrified by this and understand that there can't be anything like peace as long as Palestinians are subjected to these horrific policies, decades of military occupation, of land theft, of being treated as less than human. And to talk about peace without addressing that, without ending these decades of abuses that, Jerome, 
I've been talking about on your show for far too long, that that will never bring peace. Ali, I talked with the Middle East editor of the BBC yesterday, and he seemed convinced that there was a peace plan that Israel and the U.S. and the Saudis are cooking up, and they're going to deliver this, and it's not going to really include Palestinian buy-in per se, but it's going to be their idea of a peace plan. And, you know, Jared Kushner was talking about it yesterday where everybody's going to get more than they think they got and, and it's going to be great. Yeah, they certainly may think they're going to try this, but you cannot impose a settlement, a tailor-made settlement for Israel where Jerusalem is already off the table, as Donald Trump has said, where Palestinian refugee rights are completely trashed, where the Palestinians get a so-called state on a few scraps of land in the West Bank, where Gaza remains under an eternal siege. That is the essence of their peace plan. It's to take the status quo and call it peace. You cannot impose that. And the result of this horror, this bloodshed that we're seeing is the culmination of decades of the United States, not just Trump, but Obama before him and Bush and Clinton and all of them before him, putting Israel's interests and Israel's demands before the rights of the Palestinian people. It can't be done. The difference now is that Israel has allies in the region in the form of the Saudi dictatorship, the Saudi absolute monarchy in some of the Gulf states. But they will not succeed. Israel spending billions of dollars. I mean, I was just in a conference in Dublin where we had this great presentation by Shir Hever on all of the Israeli technology that is supposed to help suppress the Palestinian people. And here we are, Palestinians with kites, maybe with rocks, but the vast majority of them completely unarmed civilians, and Israel isn't responding to them with high technology. It's responding to them with snipers. It brings us back to the core. We have an oppressed people, and we have an occupier that refuses to recognize their rights, and when they rise up, kills them in cold blood. This is an old story. This is like the Sharpeville massacre in South Africa in 1960 that turned the world against apartheid South Africa and inaugurated the international boycott and isolation of South Africa. This is like what Bull Connor was doing in the southern United States when black people rose up for their rights. They said never, never, never an end to segregation. And this is what Israel is saying to the people of Gaza, no end to segregation. You will never return to your homes. You will never have your rights. And if you demand them, we will kill you. It's time for the world to stop supporting this and to tell Israel there will be a price if you continue to kill people this way. And that's what Palestinians are asking. In Dublin, where I just was, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Michael McDonacher, just called for Ireland to boycott next year's Eurovision Song Contest in Israel. I know you've discussed Eurovision on Worldview, but that's one way, a symbolic way, to say enough, just like with apartheid South Africa, enough. We won't be complicit. We won't be silent. Ali Abunima is with the Electronic Intifada. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll talk with film contributor Milos Stelak. He's at the Cannes International Film Fest. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milos Stalik is at the Cannes International Film Festival in Cannes, France. Milos, good to talk with you. Hey, Jerome. Very cold weather here. It was beautiful, 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 and then rain, 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 and freezing. But now the sun's finally come out. Hmm. Almost the same thing here, Milos, only no sun. <laughs> well, at least there is a triumphant return of the sun here. Speaking of returns, I hear there's a return of The Cold War. It's the new movie by Pavel Kowski, and he's the guy who directed Ida, which won an Academy Award and was a black-and-white film that was really terrific. Uh, what's up with Cold War? And this is a black-and-white film set during the Cold War, meaning post-war during the 1950s, a love affair between a very young girl who comes into the National Music School and a conductor, composer, music teacher who is much older than she is. Uh, this passionate love affair starts out in the school where he's a teacher and she's learning to be a student to do folkloric dancing and folkloric singing. Ultimately, on a tour, he escapes in Berlin, post-war Berlin, gets to France, and they are separated. So this love story is, of course, separated by the Iron Curtain. It continues until eventually they manage to get together, and of course it ends very tragically. So it examines the role of culture, of music, and of course of how these lovers are separated by the exigencies of history and that called war. Beautifully shot in black and white, very distanced film and, of course, very tragic. So this guy is working in the same milieu as he did with Ida, the post-World War II time that was such a people in flux and uh, reflecting on how relationships are, are affected by the world. Right. And Ida was quite controversial in Poland. You know, it really started a kind of a backlash against Pawlikowski because he's a Polish filmmaker who emigrated with his parents to England and made an, quite a number of very good films in England, both features and documentaries. He goes back and forth between both genres. You know, but obviously he's decided to stay inside Poland and to keep examining this history that's really never been told because even though it's more than 50 years, this new generation in Poland and Czechoslovakia and the former Eastern Bloc doesn't really know what their parents or the generation of their parents went through, especially when emotion, love is positioned against the exigencies of politics. I noticed that there is a new Jean-Luc Godard film at Cannes, 87 years old, and he is still pushing out some kind of movies. Uh, he's working. It's his first film here in competition in a long time. It's called, in English, Image Book or Book Image. Uh, that gives you kind of an idea of what it's about. It's a lot of words, a lot of texts. There's nothing originally shot in that film. It's all reprocessed clips from other films, uh, supplemented by either dialogue or by commentary, sometimes by Godard, who has a very gravely voice. Uh, at the same time, he experiments a lot with sound because it plays around with the whole Dolby multi-system and sound coming at you from the left, from the right, from someplace else, kind of the same way that he played around technically in his previous film, which was in 3D. You know, a film that many young people especially immediately seize upon and say this is the work of an immense genius and no question that Godard is very, very, very smart. On the other hand, you could also say, well, does this really make sense to anyone? And the Answer, simple answer to that is no. And what is the film about? Godard telling you that the end of the world is coming and civilization is doomed.
doomed. Certainly not new news, but perhaps told in a different way coming from him. All right, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to say something about Khan's existential crisis. Uh, speaking of the end of the world is coming, there seem to be a lot of doomy predictions about Khan right now. It seems to be stubbornly resisting change, and you still can't take a selfie, and there's this Netflix controversy. After years of talking about gender parity, they're signing some kind of deal to improve gender equity today. How's the existential crisis there? Well, you know, there's always an existential crisis to Khan every single year. If it's not from one thing, it's from another. So in some way that they're used to dealing with these existential Crisis. On the other hand, you know, it's an immense festival, an immense event to pull off. It's 40,000 people who descend on this small town with all kinds of different agendas. Obviously, the parity, the inequality in gender parity in filmmaking is worldwide and is immense because there are simply not enough women filmmakers, not enough women in film, not enough women uh, employed, women are not being paid the same. And so this whole thing, of course went on and started a long time before Khan happened this year. Most recently, 82 women led by Kate Blanchett, who is the uh, head of the jury, and also by Agnes Varda, who is the 87, 88-year-old filmmaker of the French New Wave, read this big statement on the steps of the play, on the red carpet. So this was the big protest, which then led to this uh, signing of this agreement that Khan is going to be more open about the number of women who are in each film production, the number of women who are are involved in the film selection for Khan, obviously being pushed in that direction. That's coming also on top of, of course, also the crisis with Netflix. There was a report just in the trade paper here today saying that Thierry Frimaud, who is the secretary, the chief programmer, the director of the festival, in essence, was threatened with being fired by members of his board who have a very close connection to the theatrical industry, to the exhibitors film exhibitors, theater exhibitors in France, that if he did not push back against this digital attempt by Netflix to basically have it all on both plates, to only show films at the same time on their platform without releasing it to theaters, then uh, Thierry Frimaud would be fired. So, of course, <laughs> he, being a true cinema lover, which he is, said that he really wants to get the festival back to its roots, away from all of this obsession with selfies and with all of this idiocy circus which goes on here each and every single time because people try to use the festival for their own ends. And he wants to get it back to the purity, to cinema, to looking at films, to appreciating them, to un trying to understand what the year's film production is really happening among the most talented filmmakers. Well, good luck to that. He's getting his clock cleaned by the Venice Film Festival every year, isn't he? Well, this is another issue that's coming up because, of course, people are complaining that there are the fewer deals being made, that there are not enough American films, as if American films drive the agenda, which, of course, they do drive the world agenda. But, I mean, part of the problem is, is that Cannes has become very expensive, that it really costs a studio millions to bring a film here because it's not just sending the film. They are also bringing the entire entourage, all of the actors, you know, private jets, parties that they have to sponsor here. I mean, this is an immense undertaking, which is very, very, very expensive. Expensive, and that's been creeping up for quite a long time. Also, the fact that Khan is pretty far away from the Oscar season, which really begins sometimes in September, begins with Venice, Toronto, and Telluride, and those have been kind of the designated festivals that kind of kick off this race for the Oscar, whether or not that's significant, who knows. And so Khan has kind of been separated from that. That said, 
there is a kind of cleanliness and purity about it. I mean, it's really great, for example, that there are not the usual con suspects, the anointed filmmakers who didn't have a film ready, like Mike Lee, for example, just being one, and that that then gives room and space to newer and younger names and younger faces. I noticed there was an interesting-sounding film by Eva Hudson, and it's uh, Girls of the Sun. Yeah, she's a French filmmaker, and this is based theoretically on a true story of a women's battalion, part of the Peshmerga in Kurdistan, who are fighting against ISIS. These are all women who had been captured and sold in servitude or in slavery to ISIS, many of them very young girls, like uh, you know, 10 years old that was part of it, and then sold and resold to many other men. And so... These women who have escaped form their own battalion led by uh, Goshifte Farahani, the actress, who is the fearless leader, whose husband was killed and whose son has been taken away by ISIS. And so she, against all of the male stupidity of the male fighters, and goes to capture a hill and capture the, the stronghold of ISIS and liberate her son. This is all through the eyes of a French journalist who happens to be on the scene called Emmanuel Berlot. This film, you know, with all of its great noble intentions, is so heavy-handed and so pedantic and so filled with cliches, it really went over like a lead bomb. And... Terrible, terrible, terrible reaction. And there's one woman critic, Lisa Nesselson, who writes for Screen and who's actually from Chicago, also is on France 24 and lives in Paris, said, uh, you know, I want more women's films here, but not if they are as terrible as Girls of the Sun. I'm talking with Milos Stelic at the Cannes International Film Festival. Before we let you go, Milos, I noticed uh, Jafar Panahi, the Iranian director whose films have been banned. He's been banned from filmmaking in Iran, yet still keeps making films, has a film out called Three Faces. Yeah, this is his fourth film, which is not a film. (laughs) The first one, after he was banned from filmmaking, he's banned for 20 years from traveling outside of Iran, so he can't really go anywhere. He was under house arrest for some time. And this is the fourth production that he's pulled off, and the first one that has been shown in the Khan competition. The story here is very simple, like all of his non-film films that he's made since then. It's Panahi, who is in the film himself, and an Iranian actress, Benaz Jafari, uh, received a video shot on a cell phone from a girl in a very tiny village, which is on the border of Azerbaijan. So, in fact, many of the people in the village speak Turkish. And she is saying that she's committing suicide. So they don't know whether that story is true. So both she, this actress, and Panahi travel to that village to find out the truth, discovering that this, in fact, was staged. But then this really brings up lots of issues, especially for young people in Iran, because Iran has a huge young population most of which is fighting against the tradition, like the tradition that this girl fights in her village because her parents don't want her to go to school to become an actress in Tehran, which is what very much she wants to do. So examining the kinds of contradictions in Iranian life, Three Faces is really more adventuresome and more complex than the other films that Panahi has made recently because those tended to be very personal kind of essay, diaristic films. Here there's a larger crew, a large number of characters, and it's really beautifully shot, a very thoughtful meditation on what young people especially are fighting in these contradictions between tradition and modernity and freedom in Iran. 
That's the film Three Faces by Jafar Panahi at the Cannes International Film Festival. Milo Stalik keeping us up to date on the doings in Cannes and managed to keep your eyes open during all these films there, Milos, while you're struggling through them? You know, you don't really know what it means when your eyes hurt from having seen too many films. It is a condition. It must have, or it should have if it doesn't have some medical name for it. Well, we'll talk to you in a couple of days, and, and we'll check your eyesight again. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to talk about the Colombian elections. Juan Manuel Santos is stepping down after a couple of terms in Colombia. He won the Nobel Peace Prize. He cut the deal with the FARC. He's extremely unpopular now in his country. And the next leader is, the guy who's leading in the polls, is a right-winger called Ivan Duque. He says he'll govern from the center. He um, will talk about the fate of the peace deal and the future of Colombia tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us. If you missed some of our previous programs, how about our hour about Karl Marx last week or the Eurovision recap from yesterday? You can always check them out on the website at wbez.org. You can spin back on the replayer. You can go to the Worldview page and play uh, those segments, or you can subscribe to the Worldview podcast and get Worldview every day. Go to iTunes, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, check it out there and be never be without Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Galilee Abdullah and Anna Waters for production assistance. Mike Gilmore engineered today. Daniel Musisi curated our music. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.